We can keep Philippians chapter 1 open as we come to study this evening verses 8 to 11. And under the same uh, theme as last Lord's Day evening, joyful prayer, the second part in our study of Paul's joyful prayer. Uh, And we began this study last Lord's Day looking at uh, chapter 1 verses 3 to 11, or sorry, chapter 1 verses 3 to 7 I should say. And we noted three things about Paul's joyful prayers last Lord's Day evening. Uh, We noted how he prays for all the Philippians always. He was regularly in prayer for these people. He says in verses 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all. And we considered how the local church family should be praying like this. We should be praying regularly for one another. And if we do so, it will inevitably increase our love for one another. If we are praying for one another. We also saw that Paul prayed thankful prayers. He says in verse 5 that he gives thanks because of their partnership with him in the gospel. Uh, And so the gospel of course central to uh, Paul's concerns in this letter. The gospel was of course uh, what drove Paul's life. A desire to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And the Philippians perhaps without ever leaving their own city had become partners with Paul in that task. They were partnering with him financially. Uh, He writes about that uh, here at the beginning of the letter and again later on in the letter, how they had met his practical needs financially. Uh, But they had also partnered with him simply by uh, remaining friendly with him, showing affection and love for him. Uh, Paul, when he wrote to them, was under house arrest in Rome. He was in the very shameful position of being a prisoner. A position in which people often find themselves losing friends. And yet the Philippians had remained loyal to Paul for the sake of the gospel. And so he was thankful for them in his prayers. And then we also saw that Paul prayed with confidence in his prayers. Verse 6 he says, I am sure of this. I am confident of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying that our prayers for one another are are prayers that we would grow in grace. They're they're never pointless or fruitless prayers because God is constantly at work in us. If we are saved by grace and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are God's work and God will finish his work and he will complete his work upon the return of Jesus. We continue on looking at Paul's prayers this evening then and and verses 7 and 8 Uh, aren't really prayers as such. Uh, Verses 7 and 8 is more an expression of Paul's love for these people. If you look at verse 8 with me. (coughs) He says, God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Uh, And so he says, God is my witness. That's very strong language. He's, He's swearing an oath there. Sometimes people use that language today very flippantly in a, in a blasphemous way. Paul's obviously not being blasphemous. Uh, he's saying very sincerely how much he yearns and has affection for these people. Uh, the word yearn there in the original is quite a rare word in the New Testament. Uh, but again, it, it speaks to the depth of love that Paul has for his, for his readers. And he says that he has the affection of Christ for them. And in many ways, this gets to uh, the, the heart of what Paul, what we'll see tonight that Paul is praying for them, that 
Paul is praying for more and more of Christ, the, the spirit of Christ, the character of Christ uh, to, to come out, as it were, in the lives of the Philippians. And he's saying here that the love of Christ is coming out of Paul uh, toward the Philippians. He's saying that the love I have for you is the love that Christ has for you. It's Christ in me, stirring up within me uh, love for you and concern and affection for you. What a challenging thought, friends, just as we begin here, that one of the ways that we can be assured of Jesus' love for us is by the love that we show to one another. You think, sometimes people ask, well, how do I know that Jesus loves me? Well, part of the answer is it should be seen in the affection that Christian people show to one another and indeed to the world around us, that we love our neighbour as ourselves, that we love one another with a Christ-like affection. That's a, a deeply challenging thought. Do we have that yearning and affection for God's people that Paul had here, that Christ-like affection? Well, one of the ways that we know that we have that such Christ-like love for one another is that we are moved to pray in the ways that Paul was praying for the Philippians. And so he speaks of his affection for the Philippians in verses 7 and 8. Look what that leads to in verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound. Affectionate love for God's people leads to persistent prayer for God's people. If we love one another, we will pray for one another and for the needs of people beyond our bounds as well. And so Paul continues to to outline his prayers for the Philippians uh, here uh, in verses 9 to 11, which we'll look at now. And I do feel somewhat convicted. I was talking with some fellow preachers this week, we, we, we chat every so often about, uh, about, our, about one another's preaching and, and how we might improve. And one of the things that was said was the need to have really good headings that your people can remember that will stand out. And try as I might, I haven't been able to come up with some particularly catchy headings this evening. And in light of that conversation this week, I feel somewhat guilty about that. But anyway, we're simply going to look at what Paul prayed for the Philippians, first of all. And then why Paul prayed these things for the Philippians. Uh, So maybe the simplicity of it will help us to to follow. So a couple of things that Paul prays for the Philippians in verses 9 to 11. (coughs) First of all, he prays that they would be abounding in love. He prays that they would be abounding in love or that they would have abounding love. If you look at verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And the word there, of course, means overflowing, just gushing out, just pouring forth. Uh, uh, you think of uh, uh, the river even in the, uh, in the Dromore Park, when there's been a lot of really, really heavy rain, you see that river beside the park just gushing along. Uh, and that's the sense of the word here that Paul, Paul has for us, that our love would just abound, that it would be flowing out more and more. The particular word for love that he uses here, it's one of the, the better known Greek words that I'm sure you've heard used from time to time, the word agape. Uh, the idea of, of love that serves the other, uh, sacrificial love. Now Paul doesn't really specify who or what it is that he wants the Philippians to have more love for. But I don't think we're taking a great leap to say that he probably wants their love for one another to abound. And he wants their love for their God to abound. 
And he wants their love for the gospel to abound. I don't think we're really stretching the text too much to suggest that those might be the areas where he wants to see their love abound. And notice, by the way, he doesn't pray that they would begin loving or that they would become loving people. He prays that the love that they already have, that he has already seen in them, that that love would just keep going and that it would strengthen and increase. (coughs) Paul can clearly see love in this church already. And that comes out in what he's been saying about their partnership in the gospel and the joy that it brings to him to think of them and the memories he has perhaps from his time amongst them. These were obviously people who loved the Saviour, whose lives have been transformed by uh, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, They were already demonstrating the love that Paul wanted them to, to, to have. But nonetheless, he prays that they might have even more of that Christ like love, that affection that he has for them, that Christ, uh, that, that affection of Christ himself, Paul wants it to abound. Uh, the language there could also be used uh, in, the, in the farming context. You imagine a farmer going out into his fields a few weeks into the spring and they check to see how the crops are doing and Sure enough, there's already evidence of growth, just tiny little leaves or saplings or buds. A few weeks later, there's, there's signs of further growth, progress. And you think, great, that everything seems to be good in the field. The crops are coming along bit by bit. But the farmer doesn't want that to stop in the early days of spring. He, he wants it to abound all through the spring and all through the summer. He, he wants to see the best harvest possible. Not just the odd green shoot. And that's what Paul is saying for the Philippians. He, he, he sees their love. He sees signs of that love. But he wants it to abound. He wants the best harvest possible. Well how is this, uh, how is this love to abound? How is this going to happen? How is their love to be channeled or directed? We'll look at the end of verse 9. He says that he, he wants their love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Come back to discernment in a moment. But the word knowledge there is very important. It's a word that keeps popping up regularly <coughs> all through this letter. This is how their love, friends, is to be directed. This is how their love is to be defined with knowledge. What does Paul mean by that? Well, the word that Paul uses here in the original, it it almost always refers to moral matters in the New Testament. This word knowledge, it's a knowledge of what is right and wrong, basically. It's a knowledge of what God commands us to do and how how we are to put those commands into practice. And it's interesting that Paul would marry these two words together, love and knowledge. That, that love is not just whatever we might think it is or whatever we might feel it is. Love is to be defined and directed according to our knowledge of God's word. Again, if you think of someone trying to grow plants or crops, uh, certain types of plants or crops, they need a bit of structure. Uh, they need a bit of direction if they're to grow in the right way and not just to grow wild. Uh, maybe some of you have... Uh, have uh, trellises or, or sticks or 
bits of fencing that you use to prop up a, a plant or, or to direct it in the way that you want it to go. You put some structure around it so that it can weave its way around the structure and grow up in the way that you want. Paul says true love, friends, is directed. It is, if, it's, it's sent in the right direction by our knowledge of God and his word. Who God is, what God loves, how God loves, what he commands us to do and to be. This letter of the Philippians I mentioned last week, it's often thought of as Paul's you know, really friendly letter. Uh, and it certainly comes off perhaps more friendly perhaps than the likes of Galatians, which is a very stern letter in many ways. And yes, it is. This is a lovely, joyful, encouraging letter. But this word knowledge is very important in the book of Philippians. Over and over again, Paul uses versions of it. And it's a reminder to his friends, particularly in our culture today, that uh, our culture that says that everything is permissible and people say ridiculously empty slogans like love is love. And they use that love is love slogan to justify whatever sinfully perverted lifestyle they want to live. Paul says, no, love is not whatever you want it to be or whatever you feel your orientation to be. Love is defined by God. Love is defined by God's commands. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And so how do we abound in love? What does this mean for us practically? This means we get to know God's word. This means we think through day to day, how can I abound in my honouring of my mother and father? How can I abound in my honouring uh, or, or how can I abound in my respect and love for my neighbour? What can I be doing to sacrifice my own interests to meet the needs of others? In my marriage, in my family, in my workplace, in my community. A couple of commentators have written on this subject. They say biblical love is not mushy gushy but self-sacrificial. That is the true test of love. Not whether it makes me feel good but whether it puts God first, your neighbour second and yourself third. <coughs> they go on love is not blind but biblically informed love involves your mind as well as your heart it might sound very unromantic to say this but I don't think you can really say that there is such a thing as love at first sight there might be attraction at first sight but not love genuine love asks questions and goes to God's word and expresses itself based on what is right and true, on a knowledge of what is right and true and not just on how I feel. And friends, in the culture that we live in at the moment, there might be nothing more important to grasp than this. So Paul prays that they would be abounding in love according to their knowledge of God's word. But the other thing that he prays for them is that they would have an ability to discern that they would be abounding in love and that they would have ability to discern. Now this is closely related, this word discernment at the end of verse 9. It's closely related to knowledge, uh, but it builds upon it. It adds a further dimension to it. Verse 9 he says, With knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. Uh, this word discernment in the original, this is actually the only time 
that it's used in the whole New Testament. But in the time of Paul, there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word was used 27 times in the book of Proverbs, particularly uh, to translate Proverbs about our words, about our speech. Uh, Proverbs, of course, has a lot to say about speech and in particular about the wisdom needed to say the right thing at the right time. <coughs> and so perhaps what Paul is getting at here when he, when he mentions the word discernment is that we need to be able to, to not just know what is true or even to say what is true, but to say it at the right moment and in the right way. And this is very important when it comes to our love for one another and how we express that love. Sometimes it takes tact. Sometimes it takes discernment. Imagine a parent watching a little child maybe playing in a sport and the child's not had their best performance. And the father could say, well, you know, you were, you were pretty bad today. Uh, you didn't do very well. Um, you missed a lot of passes and tackles. Uh, you missed a sitter there right at the end. Um, that would all be true. But would it be best? Perhaps not. Uh, equally, I'm not saying, by the way, they should tell lies to the child, oh, you were a superstar, I'm not saying that. But there's a time and a place for uh, saying the truth and saying it in the right way and making sure that our timing and our tone is loving, that it's discerning. And equally, Paul wants the Philippians to be people of discernment. Notice the reason, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. Another translation is, so that you may choose what is vital. Paul, Paul is basically saying to the Philippians here, you need to be switched on. You can't just walk down the street in Philippi. You can't just go about your normal lives without being discerning about what you say and how you say it and about what you believe and why you believe it. Remember the situation these Philippians are in? We thought a bit about it last week. They're living in a, in a wealthy, prosperous Roman city. Uh, the kind of city that everybody wanted to live in in those days. A city full of people worshipping all kinds of false gods. To live faithfully for Christ in that city, the Philippians had to be discerning. They had to figure out what was best and what was right and how to express their love for one another and their love for their neighbours, unsaved though they may be. Some of them might have to leave their jobs because their jobs involved immoral practices. Some of them might have to stay in their jobs but be prepared for rejection and obstacles and unfair treatment. Think of the situation in the Philippian church family. If we, when we get further into the letter, we got a glimpse of it in what we read earlier from chapter 4, but there were major challenges facing this church. <coughs> There was the challenge of false teaching. There seems to have been division between two members. We read a bit about that earlier. They were going to need to love. They were going to need to abound in love. And they were going to need to be discerning about how to best express that love. The church elders perhaps needed to be discerning about how to build up the members how to rebuke those who are perhaps going in the wrong direction, influenced by false teaching. 
And all of these things, friends, that, that, that's real love. Not just a, a warm feeling, but practical, thoughtful care as to how we speak and how we act. So Paul prays that they would be abounding in love and that they would have an ability to discern. And aren't these things that we need to pray for ourselves and for one another regularly? That our love may abound. That our love as husbands and wives, parents and grandparents, brothers and sisters, fellow church members, that it wouldn't grow cold Remember what Christ said to the church in Ephesus, you've abandoned the love that you had. We need to pray that that wouldn't be the case for us, but that in our relationships together, that we would be abounding in love. We need to pray that we'd be abounding in love for the lost. It's so easy just to look around and think people are generally all right in our country, in our community. They've got houses, they've got big TVs to watch their uh, to watch their shows, to watch football, to watch whatever they want to watch. They've got food on the table. They've got a car in the driveway. And all the while they're headed to a lost eternity. In our places of employment, do we think about how to be discerning in our words and in our actions? Where, where is Satan likely to catch us out? In what situations might we find ourselves where our witness could be compromised? Do we think about how to love those that we struggle to love at all? Those that just polar opposite personality, polar opposite views on almost anything? Our young people need to be discerning. They need to have knowledge to direct their love. I could study here or there. I could date this person. I could start this job or this ministry. But in light of what God's word says, what will be best? What will enable my love for God and for others to abound? Paul's prayer for the Philippians, friends, should be a regular prayer for us. That our love would be grounded in God's word and expressed with God's wisdom. Abounding in love and an ability to discern. That's what Paul prayed for the Philippians. But uh, finally we'll consider this evening why Paul prayed these things for the Philippians. What drove Paul to keep on praying for the Philippians? <coughs> and it's easy to get discouraged in our prayers, isn't it? We don't always see the answers that we want. We perhaps just find ourselves tired or feeling too busy or, or feeling too overwhelmed to pray. Uh, we should never, by the way, let those excuses stop us from going to the place of prayer. But what kept Paul at it? What kept him praying for these people that, after all, he hardly ever got to see? Uh, they're away off in Philippi. He's in Rome. Uh, it had been easy for him to think, well, they're in God's hands. What, what kept him at it? Why? What motivated Paul to keep praying these things for these people? Well, look at verse 10. So that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The thought of the return of Christ. The thought of these people persevering to the end until they see their saviour. The thought of these people someday being perfect. That was what kept Paul praying for them. The word pure there basically means what you see is what you get. It has the sense of integrity. Maybe you've had the experience of buying something for your home. 
new washing machine or a new TV or something. And, and soon after you've bought it, you realize that there's some major defect. And either the seller was just being dishonest. He lacked integrity. Or the manufacturer lacked integrity. Somebody somewhere along the way has lacked integrity. What seemed to be fine uh, was not what it seemed. And as human beings, we all, to one degree or another, we, we can lack integrity. We're not always what we appear. And some people get caught out in a, in a, on a national scale in that sense. You know, politicians' integrity getting called into question when they're caught in the latest scandal. Or church, church leaders, pastors, preachers. Sadly, horrendously caught in scandal. And, it rea- and you realise that wasn't a person of integrity. But friends, all of us, on some level, we still have those areas of moral weakness, those areas of our character that need God's grace to refine us and prune us and purify us. And Paul is saying here, ultimately, that he's praying for their love to abound so that The character of Christ, the love of Christ, the knowledge of God's word would work upon those hidden faults and inconsistencies so that they become less and less a part of who these people are. He also uses the word blameless, pretty self-explanatory words, no blemish, no inconsistency. Think of a a perfectly white dress or shirt, something with just not a flaw on it anywhere. And that's what, again, Paul knows that these people will be someday. And the thought of their purity, the thought of their blamelessness, the thought of the day of Christ, friends. (coughs) It spurs Paul on in his prayers for these people. It's important to say that Paul in no way is telling the Philippians that they need to get their act together or they need to sort themselves out in a sense. But what he's saying is that he wants to see their true identity come out more and more. As they love one another, as they sacrifice for one another, as they get to grips with God's word, as they practice discernment, as they do those things, the real them, the new, the new person, the new people that they are in Christ will come out will come to the fore more and more. And it's the same for us, friends. If you're saved by God's grace, if you have put your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if your trust is in what he has done, the substitute taking the punishment for your sins on the cross, then you are united to Christ. He is in you and you are in him. And he gives you power and grace by his spirit to be more and more pure And more and more blameless. Paul essentially is praying for these Philippians. That it would become more and more obvious who they really are. New people in Christ. And this is all with the last day. The day of Christ in mind. He mentioned this back in verse 6 as well. uh, The day of Christ Jesus. He mentions it again in verse 10. He's reminding them here. He's motivating them here. And he himself is motivated to pray these things. Because the day of Christ is coming. And so Paul uses the future as a motivation for the present. It's like when we get ourselves ready for the big occasion. A graduation, a wedding, a big celebration of some kind. We don't just turn up any which way. We turn up having made ourselves ready. 
knowing for perhaps months that that day was coming and planning our lives and conducting ourselves accordingly. And the thought of not wanting anything to be out of place, wanting to be at our best or look our best, wanting to be there on time, (coughs) it motivates us days, months in advance. And similarly, friends, as we wait for the return of Christ, Alec Mateer in his commentary says, Our dearest sins, our failures in holiness, must surely be challenged, deposed, and scorned in the light of the thought that the Lord we love is coming. When Satan springs some deceitful temptation upon you tomorrow morning, or on Wednesday night, or some other time, remember, Christ is coming. We're going to see our Saviour face to face. And whatever Satan is trying to dress up and offer us, Christ has so much more and so much better to offer us. And so why would we want to disappoint him? Instead, let's abound in love, and knowledge and discernment that we might become more and more pure and blameless the people that Christ can make us to be. Look at verse 11. He says he wants them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Again, the language there of harvest, barns filled with fruit, good crops. And this is language that Paul uses elsewhere that That as Christians, our lives should be fruitful. That we should be producing fruit. And you think of Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul prays for their love to abound so that their lives will be filled with more of that kind of fruit. And again, the ultimate purpose of this, he's mentioned the day of Christ Jesus. He mentions also in verse 11... To the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. We touched on this last week as well, friends, that God is at work upon us. That that our sanctification, our becoming more like Christ, that is God's work. And having started it, he will finish it and he will take the glory for it. Why is God bothering to work upon us? Foolish sinners by nature and choice. Uh, People who still struggle and stumble so easily day to day. He's doing it, friends, to bring glory to himself. So that one day the great sovereign, creator, holy, almighty God presents us before the angels of heaven and the demons of hell. And says, look what my grace and my love and my son and my spirit can accomplish. And God will get the glory for it. And it's God's spirit who causes us to abound in knowledge and love and discernment. To the glory of his name. What a comfort. What a a joyful and amazing truth, friends. That almighty God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit takes delight in transforming your life and mine. So that we abound and become more Christ-like and become pure and blameless. And that he would take pleasure in that. What great fuel for our prayers this should provide. God wants us to conquer sin. 
God wants us to abound in love. God wants us to have discernment. So ask him for those things. There's sometimes we ask God for things and we don't know if it's his will to give it. Better health and strength. The grades that we want. The job that we want. The house that we want. It might be God's will to give you some of those things. It might not. It's definitely his will to make you abound in love and in knowledge and discernment. So ask him to grant you those things. For his honour and glory. Maybe as we read these verses of Paul's prayer today, we're overwhelmed and we think, well, I see so little of these things in my life. I feel like there's just rotten, stinking fruit in my life more than lovely fruit, the lovely fruit of righteousness. My failure seems far more regular than my victories. And we could get discouraged. But there's no reason to be discouraged as we read these words of Paul. Because again, friends, it's God. It's, it's the Spirit of Christ working in us. This is not a do better, try harder uh, text. And I hope it's not a do better, try harder sermon. This is a, an encouragement from Paul that Christ has already been at work in us. Christ is at work in us. And Christ will continue to work in us until the moment that he returns. <coughs> and since it's his work, he gets the glory. Jesus told his disciples in John fifteen five, Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's power available for us to abound in love, but it's Christ's power and not ours. And so we should pray that more and more that love would flow through us by the help and power of his Holy Spirit. Story is told of Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, as far as I know, this is a true story. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia brought a, a group of uh, poor Bedouins, uh, nomadic people from Northern Africa. Uh, he brought them to stay in London and he put them up in a beautiful hotel. These people had just spent their lives just trekking the deserts uh, and they'd only ever lived in tents. They'd never seen anything like what they experienced in London. And they were particularly fascinated, these Bedouins, with the taps in the hotel. In the desert, of course, they had to walk for miles or dig a well to get water. But in this hotel, they just turn the tap and the water comes out. And at the end of their stay, Lawrence came into their rooms and began helping them to pack up. And he discovered that they'd taken all the taps off the sinks and were planning to pack them up and take them home with them. They thought the taps were all they needed to get the water. Well, it might sound a little hard to believe, but there's a good point in the story at least. We are the taps. Unless we're connected to the pipeline of living water, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're useless. Prayer is, in a sense, how we get the water running. Prayer is an admission that we cannot help ourselves. When we pray, friends, that's, that's an act of humility that we, that we lack the strength, the power by nature to change, to be discerning, to abound in love. <coughs> but prayer, the act of prayer reminds us that what we lack by nature, Christ provides by his spirit flowing through our new nature. Are you united to Christ this evening? Do you have his power flowing through your life? All sorts of talk today about how we can improve. 
we can work on our mental health, if we can work on our physical fitness, if we can be more ambitious, and that is all do better, try harder. That's the gospel of the world. Gospel of our culture says it's up to you to make of your life the best you possibly can. It's no wonder the levels of stress and anxiety in the world around us if people are falling for that. Christ said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you, remember he said to the woman at the well, I will give you living water. As I said at the beginning, Paul doesn't pray that the Philippians would start loving or start being fruitful. He simply prays for more. If you like that there would be a few more turns of the tap. If you're a Christian today, your life, to change the picture again, is it's not an empty field that needs something planted in it. The gospel has already been planted in it. And it's already producing green shoots, perhaps more than you realise. Perhaps there's more fruitfulness in our lives than we sometimes realise. But by God's grace, may it abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment that we might be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And so friends, may we consider this week how we might abound in love, how we might be more discerning. And when we are discouraged or tired, may we remember the day of Christ is coming when we will be pure and blameless and all to his honour and glory. Amen.